0: You don't have to say it back to me. That's okay. (laughs) If you're here and you're a mom, we want to celebrate. We we hope you feel celebrated and welcomed and loved this morning. I want you to know you reflect the character of God to us. God calls himself a father, and we see that often. God also describes himself with the heart of a mother. The way that he cares for his children, the way that he nurtures and draws close. We also want to acknowledge this morning that this is a day of celebration for a lot of people, and this can be a day of pain for a lot of people. And we want to say this we're a community where two things can be true at the same time, where you don't have to fake a smile because other people are celebrating, and you don't have to pretend like you're not celebrating because other people are struggling, where we can come to the community and to the Lord honestly. So wherever you're at today, you are loved, and you are welcomed, and we are grateful for you. So we're in our week, week two of our Kingdom Lifestyle series. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, kind of a heavy hitter story today. Um, we're going to start reading in verse 31. While you're turning there, a couple of disclaimers with this series. First off, last week, we laid out a framework that this entire series is built on. If you were here, you might remember, here's the framework that everything in this series is built on from here on out. It's this, loyalty to Jesus and love of others leads to transformation in our circles of influence. Loyalty to Jesus and love of others leads to transformation in our circles of influence. Here's the second thing. This series, we're getting into the fine details, the practical reality of what it looks like to actually live out the kingdom of God. What is actually expected in my life if I call myself one of God's people? Whenever we talk about something like this, some of us at least can have a tendency to respond in shame, in guilt, or in legalism. So I want to say this. This is the disclaimer that this series lies under. We live on this side of the cross. We live under forgiveness and under mercy. So we are forgiven. And during this series, when you and I inevitably find a place where we're like, man, I don't really, I don't live up to that. The response is not shame and guilt. The response is thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for the invita- invitation into a better way of living. Amen. We are forgiven, so our sins are not, and shortcomings are not held against us. But forgiveness doesn't mean there's not right and wrong. So there's still a right, better, beautiful way to live. And that's the kingdom lifestyle. Amen? All right, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start reading in verse 31. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Like I said, this is a heavy hitter. Let's pray. God, we approach today a passage of scripture that um, is convicting to all of us, I think. Um, And it's heavy, but we approach it under the knowledge of, of your grace and your mercy. So I ask that your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness and your acceptance would be the tone of this morning. That we would walk away today invited into the life you offer us. And God, I ask, as we always ask, that your word would speak, your name would be remembered and nothing else. We love you, Jesus. Amen. The baseline... For our culture is outrage. Have you noticed that? We are so ready to get outraged at anything. Honestly, like the the easiest way to look at this is movies. How many of you saw the new Batman? Okay, only a couple of people. There are a lot of people outraged over this. So if you see social media, every time they make a new one, right? Or if you watch them take a book that people love and turn that into a movie... My goodness, I am still mad about The Hobbit, okay? I am so mad about The Hobbit. I want, I want my midnight showings and my money back for that. Tolkien deserved better than The Hobbit trilogy, okay? I'm still outraged. This is like, this is the base. We get outraged over all kinds of stuff. We get outraged over people we agree with. Agreeing with people we disagree with. We get outraged over the cancel culture. Then we get outraged over somebody we like getting canceled. So we cancel the people who canceled them. And it becomes like a cancel triangle. We get outraged over everything all the time. It's the baseline of our culture. In fact, there's a, there's a really poignant example of this. If you've watched the news or you've been on social media or really just been alive in the world in the last week, you probably heard about a Supreme Court document that got leaked, potentially overturning Roe v.ersus Wade, which would remove abortion rights to the state, potentially eliminating abortion in much of the U.S., or at least as we know it. And if you're aware of that, and if you've been on social media, or if you've seen the news, you have seen Outrage. You have seen one group of people outraged that a law could be overturned. You've seen people outraged saying, if it was really about babies, then we would provide health care. If it was really about babies, then we would serve moms. If it was really about children, then we would make sure no one's in this situation. And then you've seen another side of people saying, how could you condone murder? How could you condone this? How could we allow this to happen? How could this law have ever been? How could you be mad that we're defending the unborn? We have seen outrage on both sides outrage is the baseline of our culture it's the first thing we reach for in our humor and in our passion and in our anger now I'm not here to start this sermon telling you that outrage is a bad thing there are times when there are things we should be outraged over we've all seen deep injustices that should bring a passionate response out of us in the world The problem with outrage, though, is that outrage is not nearly as connected to action as we would hope. One more time. Outrage is not nearly as connected to action as we would hope it is. Outrage is connected to our ideals We respond when an ideal version of a movie gets botched or when our ideal book doesn't get expressed or when our ideals about life or freedom or rights or health care are infringed upon. We respond based on our ideals. Outrage doesn't always lead to action. But a kingdom lifestyle, another way to say that is a righteous lifestyle, is a lifestyle of action, a lifestyle of action. Righteousness, best defined, is just right action, doing the right thing. If outrage is our baseline, we are responding to our ideals. But unfortunately, our ideals do very little to predict our actions. Now this story, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard it. You've probably heard it around like a missions trip or an offering or, or uh, a local outreach or something like that. And um, the way this this verse, this story, these verses normally gets taught, and I've taught it like this in the past, is kind of as an individual One off story as if it's separated from everything else and if we teach this as just an individual parable It's not that we miss the point It's just that we miss the nuance because this story like every story and everything in scripture comes within a context And the context of this story is jesus talking about the end times The beginning of matthew 24 Jesus starts a monologue. He and his disciples are leaving the temple and they're commenting on the buildings. And Jesus seemingly pensively talks about the destruction of the temple. How these beautiful buildings are going to be destroyed. And the disciples seem to get really confused every time Jesus talks about the future. So they say, hey, hey when's that going to happen? And also, when are you coming? And when's the end of the age? And what are the signs that this is going to happen? And then Jesus goes into this long, vague, confusing monologue that Christians have debated and disagreed on for 2,000 years about the end times. He talks about the destruction of the temple that we know happened in 70 AD when Rome sacked Jerusalem. And he talks about a bunch of other things. He talks about his coming in glory and judgment. And and I just want to say this. This is not a sermon about the end times. The, uh, The technical theological term for this is eschatology. If you're like me and you like to know the nerdy word for things, that's eschatology. This is not a sermon about that. But there is something that I want to say about this. Christians have a lot of varying degrees about the end times. As a church, we don't take a strong stance on that. We don't have like a specific stance that says, here's how we interpret the book of Revelation or Matthew 24. Here's what we do know. The end times leads to hope for Jesus and for the world. Our future rests on the hope of resurrection of those who believe and the making of all things right. Jesus bringing a new heaven and a new earth. Outside of that, there's a lot of room to disagree. There's one thing I want to say about eschatology besides that our our future rests in hope. It's this, whatever your perspective of the end times is, we know the Bible consistently says, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not worry. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So if your eschatology is is causing you anxiety, then I would encourage you to rethink it. If the way you think about the end times is causing you fear, doubt, confusion, doesn't mean you're wrong about the facts. It just means you might need to reimagine your posture towards it. You might need to couch it in the character of God and the hope of resurrection instead of the fear of trying to figure out the timeline or read the signs. If Jesus wanted us to agree on the end times, he would have been a lot more specific about it. Because he wasn't, it's okay for us to disagree, all right? Amen? Cool. We can move on into not eschatology stuff, which is much less confusing. See, so here's, here's what we do know, is that Jesus is talking about life, and he starts telling parables about life, waiting for something to happen. Scholars disagree over whether he's talking about the coming of his kingdom, meaning his death and resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, or his second coming. We don't really know exactly what he's referencing. What we do know is that he's talking about life in the waiting for what God is going to do. And leading up to this parable, he tells really three parables that all basically say this. It's possible to be so caught up in daily life that we forget to be aware of the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus. In other words, we can get distracted. We can miss the point. We cannot be prepared. We cannot be watchful. We cannot be aware of the coming of Jesus. We might get distracted by apathy. We might get distracted by distraction itself. We might just get confused. We might give up. We might quit trying. In other words, in our daily life, we can forget to be prepared for the kingdom of God that is here, the lordship of Jesus that already exists and his coming. So he tells parables about the need to be watchful, the need to be ready, and the need to make the most of your time. And he concludes his monologue with this story. In other words, he says you can lose sight. You might not be aware. But here's what awareness looks like. A life aware of the kingdom of God, prepared for the coming of Jesus, is a life that serves and loves the marginalized. One more time. A life aware of the kingdom of God and prepared for his coming is a life that loves and serves the marginalized. Jesus concludes his monologue on the end times by saying those that got it were those that served and those that didn't get it were those that didn't. Now here's what's interesting about this story is both groups that are divided up seem surprised at the outcome. All right, you've got one group, the righteous, that were serving. They weren't serving for some sort of accolade. They weren't serving for acknowledgement. They're surprised that Jesus equates their serving of the poor with serving him. Why? Because they weren't serving for some sort of reward. They were serving because it's right. It's right action. It's righteous. It's right. See, in, in this time in human history, anyone who was aware of Scripture... Anyone who was aware of the ways of God, so any Jewish person or any person who had spent time around Jewish people would have known undeniably that God expects his people to love and serve the poor and the marginalized. This is in every book of the Bible. It's cover to cover in scripture over and over and over again. It is baked into the expectation of God's people that you love the widow, you love the orphan, you love the foreigner, you love the marginalized. You don't keep everything for yourself, but rather you leave extra to serve and provide so that no one has a need among you. This is in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament. This is all over Scripture. So anybody who had any sort of understanding of God's people would have known this is just what's expected. God has a disposition towards the marginalized. So if I am to be one of his people, my disposition should reflect that. In fact, in the Old Testament, when we read about the the passages that oftentimes make us cringe a little bit in our modern kind of sanitized sensibilities, the judgment passages... Most often, when God gets angry, he's not angry because someone misunderstood one of the minute laws. He's angry because the widows are starving, the orphans don't have a home, the foreigners are homeless among you, the poor and marginalized are not taken care of. So God says, I will judge and punish you. Why? Because the people I have a disposition towards are not cared for among your communities. In fact, we could even extend that into our day. We could say pretty much anybody who's aware of Jesus at all, Christian, non-Christian, anybody with a concept of who Jesus is, knows Jesus hung out with the poor. Jesus served, Jesus fed, Jesus loved. It's, it's baked in. So you've got, first off, the righteous people who weren't looking for some sort of reward. They were just serving because this is the expectation. This is... This is what it means to be the people of God. This is what's right. You know, even, outside of, even outside of Scripture, most human beings would look at a life like this and say, yeah, that seems to be right. And then you've got the unrighteous, who are just as surprised and knew the same ideals. See, this is where this story gets uncomfortable is, is the, unrighteous and unri- the righteous and unrighteous were living in the same world. They had the same expectations. And they're both surprised. One that they did live up to it and the other that they didn't. See, if you, if you study the life of Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, what you see is that he continually interacts with Pharisees. One of his most consistent tensions in his ministry is people who are passionate about the ideals of God without applying the expectations of God. In other words, he consistently encounters people who want to argue about the laws, who are outraged about disagreement, who are passionate about the ideals, but are not actually loving the poor. Why? Because outrage and ideals are not nearly as connected to action as we would hope. It is possible to cling tightly to an ideal, to be outraged when that ideal is threatened without ever acting on that ideal. And I would propose that for a lot of us, it's because outrage makes us feel like we did something. When we get mad, we feel like we stood up for something, even if it was just posting on social media or having a very passionate conversation with our friends who agree with us. We feel like we did something. So I'm going to say something that might get me in trouble. I believe, and this is just my observation. This isn't based on research. This is anecdotal. But I would offer one of the the biggest problems. and, And remember, we live under the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. We live under the grace of Jesus. This is an invitation to a better life, right? This is not how dare you. No one's condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But in our culture today, I believe we speak our values, we defend our values, our ideals, we vote our ideals, and we outsource our actions. One more time. We speak our ideals, we debate our ideals, and we vote our ideals and we outsource our actions. In other words, we often convince ourselves that because I shared something on social media about it or because I voted for it, I did something. And listen, voting's important. Hear me say that. I'm not saying we need to have some sort of rejection of the culture. John Wesley, theologian in the 18th century, he said to a group of people much like us who were trying to figure out how to vote as Christians and were divided, he said, Vote your conscience. That's what he said. Vote your conscience. And if someone else's conscience causes them to vote for somebody else, don't get mad at them about it. Don't get outraged. Vote your conscience because your allegiance is to Jesus. So be a citizen, but align your actions with a different kingdom. Because because if I could, I would say, I've got friends that follow Jesus, man, that I trust, that they're they're growing in sanctification, they love Jesus. I would let them raise my kids who vote on both sides of the line. And what I see is that for many of us, on on one side, we say, I've got this ideal of the unborn, of protecting religious freedom, of the ability to share and proclaim the gospel, the ability to do missions work all over the world. That's my ideal. I vote for that. I stand for that. I defend that. And that's a beautiful, wonderful ideal. I'm personally extremely pro-life. It gets uncomfortable, though, when we say, okay, that's a great thing to vote for. When was the last time that you helped out a single mother who didn't feel like she had another option? When was the last time you adopted or fostered? When was the last time that you, you provided health care so that a woman didn't feel like abortion was her only option? When was the last time you actually spoke the gospel out loud to someone else that didn't agree with you? When was the last time you went to another country to proclaim the gospel? See, our ideals validate us, but our actions make us uncomfortable. Righteousness is right action. And then on the other side, we've got people who have ideals that we cling to and we vote for, maybe ideals of defending the poor, standing up for minorities, defending refugees and immigrants, all ideals that I would say, man, that sounds like Jesus, that sounds like the kingdom, that's a wonderful ideal. But then we ask the question, when was the last time you sacrificed your own resources or time or energy to, let's say, help a refugee or, or embrace an immigrant or serve someone who was poor? As Christians, I think we all agree, that this, is, this is like an easy amen in any church. We should minister to the homeless. It gets uncomfortable when you ask, does anyone know homeless people? Honestly, I thought about my entire sermon just being like, we should, we should serve the homeless, right? And then saying, anybody here know a homeless person? And then just saying, amen, have a great week. Because the reality for many of us is that we believe the ideal... But we just outsource the action. We get very passionate. Man, I was part of a group of young Christians in like 2010 that went around barefoot for a while because there were people who didn't have shoes and were reading like Shane Claiborne books and were part of all of these trends and stuff. And we were so passionate about defending the poor and supporting like the immigrants and refugees. The problem is we did it on our college campus with all of our friends drinking our $5 lattes and not knowing any homeless people. We had a lot of ideals that didn't lead us to any action. See, that's the convicting thing as a follower of Jesus in the modern world. It's not what do you believe. It's what are you doing about it? Has it actually manifested in your life? Because righteousness is not right ideals. It's right action. And I want to propose this. We spend a lot of time as Christians getting outraged that someone disagrees with us politically. But if we would spend time acting on those ideals, we would see we have a lot more in common than we do that we disagree about, and we would wind up accomplishing the same ideals in our actions that we spend a whole lot of time arguing about. Righteousness is right action. How many of you have heard the term poser before? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of people like like me got bullied in high school with that word. Um... That was like the worst thing you could call someone when I was in high school. Especially if you were like me and you thought of yourself as a skateboarder, right? I was never good at skateboarding, but I really wanted to be a skater. And I wanted to be in metal bands and stuff. Like, you never wanted to get called a poser. It was like you could be called a poser or a rollerblader. And those were the biggest insults. Some of you rollerblade, that's fine. I don't know why when I was 16 we thought that wheels on each foot instead of wheels attached to a piece of wood, one was cool and one wasn't. But we did. And there were ways you could tell who was a poser and who wasn't, right? Like, when I was in high school, if you wore skate shoes, if you wore Vans like these shoes, and they were clean, oh, my gosh, poser. Like, everybody that I know had Vans or skate shoes that were just dirty and scuffed up. It was like you would walk out of Hot Topic or Sun and just jump into a mud puddle and kick a curb because you didn't want anyone to think you were a poser, right? Because you couldn't spend time slam dancing in a mosh pit at a hardcore show and have clean shoes, right? The real ones had dirty sneakers. And there was a specific way for skaters that you could tell, right? Because in skate culture, Vans and skate shoes, that started to get cool among other people. So for skaters, there was a way you could tell. You could look at someone's shoes and you could be like, that's one of the real ones. That's not a poser. And it was if one shoe on the outside was rubbed smooth on the outsole, And there were scrapes on that side. Why? Because when you skateboard, you skateboard with one foot forward, right? So you pop your back foot to Ollie, and then you slide one foot forward up the grip tape, and it rubs that side of your foot smooth, and it rips up the fabric on that side. So you could look at someone, and you could say, that person skates, that person doesn't. They're wearing the same shoes, but I know the difference. I'm not a poser, right? Like, you could tell. And nobody wanted to be affiliated with posers. So when I was in high school, you'd buy a new pair of skate shoes and you'd go skate with them immediately because you didn't want people to think you were a poser. You, you wanted people to know what type of person you are. Now, I think the most remarkable thing about this story is not that we're actually expected to act on our ideals, but it's the fact that Jesus affiliated with the marginalized. Jesus was scraping up his shoes so we would know he was poor and hungry and thirsty and in jail. Did you hear that? Jesus affiliates with the least of these. In a world where we continually, this is what we want. We want our good seats at the good table right? What we want to be able to do is say, all right, look, I'm a leader. I'm an influencer. I know these people. You ever heard somebody name drop in a conversation? I mean, I've never done that, of course, but obviously I have. If you know me, I accidentally do that all the time. Um, We want to be affiliated with the successful. We want to be affiliated. And then what we want to do is we want to get down off of our seats and serve somebody, Right, Because here's the thing. In any church, we could get volunteers to go serve the homeless. We could get volunteers to put together a food pantry. We could do that and we should do that. That's wonderful. We could get people to go on a mission trip. That's just part of the church. We could, we could accomplish that because we're all okay with the action. And, and if we preach that, then we could have like six really good months at the fold of service of homeless people. And then a new wave of Christianity would come along and we wouldn't be passionate about homeless people anymore, but we would have volunteered. But that's not the only thing Jesus asks. See, Jesus, the only one who is actually at the good table... He doesn't save his seat and then invite people up. He gets down and sits on the ground with the least of these. He affiliates with those in need. He says, these are my people. I'm one of them. If you want to be one of me, become like us. You know, when we were working for the missionary organization in Asheville, some of you guys have heard some of the stories. We used to sit down on the streets with the dirty kids and gutter punks and whatever term you want to call the street youth who hop trains around the country. We'd sit down on the streets with them, and I remember walking by, people walking by, and I could see them look at us, and then they would look at us the same way they would look at the people we were with. And at first, I got offended. It's like, I'm not one of them. I'm, can't you see I'm here ministering to them? Obviously, I mean, my shoes are dirty, but come on. And then it hit me. Jesus affiliates... With the least of these, Jesus would rather be seen as one of them than one of us. So the question is not, when was the last time you gave some money to a homeless ministry or volunteered on the weekends? That's important. That's good. The question is, do you have any friends who are homeless? Is there anybody that you know their story, that they're in need When was the last time you shared a meal with someone who was genuinely addicted? And I don't mean like a Christian who used to be addicted and now you're celebrating the recovery. I mean someone who's like still in it. This is the one that's been convicting me lately. When was the last time you went to a prison? And it wasn't just to do a chapel. Because I've been to plenty of jails and done a chapel and preached a sermon and then tried not to make eye contact with people and left. But Jesus says when you visit a prisoner, you visit me. (laughs) He actually affiliated with somebody with a criminal record. Who are we affiliated with? Are we as followers of Jesus saying, these are our people? Those in need, those are our people. That's who we are. You think we're one of them, you're right. Why? Because we're Jesus people and Jesus is one of them. This is the question. We can spend a lot of energy outraged over our ideals, and our ideals are probably good and they're probably right. But it won't lead to much. It won't be a kingdom lifestyle until it manifests in action and affiliation. And this is the last thing I'm going to say. I believe this is the next thing God's calling us into as a community. If you were here at Vision Night in January, you remember we set the goals of having a, a significant, measurable, noticeable presence here in Greenville and overseas so that we are saying we are people who are meeting needs and affiliated with needs in our community. We are a community where we talk so much about grace and so much about love and so much about forgiveness and healing and all of that is wonderful and beautiful and it's part of the kingdom of God and we have to talk about it and we're never going to stop talking about it, but those ideals have to become action manifested in our lives so that we have relationships with people in need. I believe this is the next thing God's calling us to as a community. Right now, if you're here thinking, I want to be part of that, Anthony Houston leads a group about once a month downtown with Be Bold Street Ministries to go downtown Greenville to volunteer to meet needs, hand out food, pray with people and I hear the stories, they actually sit down, talk, hear stories and make friends with people on the streets. You can be involved in that. They go about once a month. You can talk to him about when the next one's going to be scheduled. We're in the process of developing a significant connection into schools so that we're going to offer volunteer opportunities for people to uh, do after-school programs and lead Bible studies and meet tangible needs but show up and be present, be big brothers and sisters and mentors for kids that are under-resourced in schools. We're working on that right now with an interdenominational partnership called The Hub. We're pursuing that. We're leading a trip to New Orleans in August. It's a training trip. The whole point of this trip is we're going to go to New Orleans and figure out in a safe third-party environment what it actually looks like to live our lives meeting needs so that we can come back here and we know how to do it. You can sign up for that. We're in the process of developing international missions, opportunities where we have relationships, where we're not just going to like, take selfies with kids in an orphanage and come back, but we are co- going to proclaim the gospel and build relationships and be long-term help And support in those places. We're working on that right now. We've got people in the church like Walden who have got tons of connections to help you serve and love and build those relationships. If you're looking for a place to get plugged in, go talk to Walden. I'm sure he's got one for you. This is what I believe God's calling us as a community to not just be kingdom people, but to live a kingdom lifestyle. And we talked about the framework loyalty to Jesus and love of others leads to transformation in our circles. This is one of the things that has to be built into that framework if we're followers of Jesus. We have to meet needs and actually know people who are homeless, who are hungry, who are thirsty, who need clothes, who are in prison, who are sick, the least of these. Because that is what Jesus expects of anyone who would consider them one of his people. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. And Jesus, I... uh, I thank you that, that you affiliate with me. That you look at my sin and my shortcomings and my problems and you are willing to say, he's mine, I'm like him, we're together. I thank you that you do not look down on us for our struggles and our shortcomings. And God, let us see ourselves through your eyes so that we can see and embrace and love and share and invite and affiliate with people that we would look down on. God, break down our ungodly comparison that causes us to want to distance ourselves from need and be seen as successful. And God, bring us a spirit that says, I'm one of the least of these. I'm with them. I'm part of them. They're my people. So that we would see your kingdom, we would see this world look as much like your kingdom as possible now while we wait for your coming. Let us do it, Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.